Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're exploring ecosystem restoration, a topic near and dear to my heart. And joining us to talk about that is Tim Christofferson. He's the head of Nature for Climate branch of the UN Environment Program. Now, if you haven't heard, the United Nations Environment Program has recently set in motion their decade of ecosystem restoration. The point being that ecosystems support all life on our planet, and the healthier our ecosystems are, the healthier our planet will be, including us, our society. The UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration aims to prevent, halt, and most importantly, reverse the degradation of ecosystems on every continent and in every ocean. More than just helping the ecology of the planet survive, it can help end poverty, combat climate change, and prevent mass extinctions. But it will only succeed if everyone plays a part. And importantly, this isn't a prescription. All of this is to engage people in conversations and efforts to working together to find common ground but also improve the ecosystems that we have taken for granted and destroyed for so long. This is a really important topic and an excellent conversation, so I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Tim Christofferson. I hope you enjoy. All right, Tim Christofferson, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. But before we jump into what you came on to talk about today, let's start off by introducing yourself. Let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Thank you very much, Matt. And it's a great pleasure to be on this podcast uh, in defense of plants. It's a great title. I love Thank it. You. <laughs> um, so I'm Tim Christofferson. I'm the father of two wonderful children. I'm happily married. And I'm working for the United Nations to make a difference for my kids. That basically sums it up. I'm a forester by training, though I've left being an active forester in the field about 20 years ago to work at the national and international policy level because I felt that there were changes that we need that are more systemic than those you can achieve at the ground level. Mm. So I'm still on that journey and trying to aim for that systemic change. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful to see someone with an actual background in forestry going in the direction of policy because you kind of understand it uh, on a level that if you just went the policy route, you might not have that on the ground experience. But what got you interested in forests and ecosystems? I mean, you mentioned your children really being the main motivation about working towards a more sustainable and, and habitable future on this earth. But what got you interested in the environment in the first place? I think that also goes back to when I was a child and I was spending a lot of time outdoors and in the forest. My grandfather was also a forester. He took me out uh, a lot on his journeys and on replanting. Um, and the, that has really shaped me. So I've, I've known that I wanted to become a forester ever since I was 12, I think. So it's, um, it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting journey mm -hmm. to leave that behind. Sometimes I, 
wish I was still working directly with plants. I try to make up, up for it in, in by having bought a little farm that I'm trying to restore in my spare time so that I only hmm. don't only talk about restoration, <laughs> but also, also do it myself. Uh, otherwise, you can lose that connection that you just described right. between what is real and works on the ground and what are the policy changes that we need. That's wonderful. Yeah. And again, keeping this all relevant, trying to get your hands dirty while also trying to affect change on a larger level is really important, which brings us to why we're connected today. You are working with the United Nations, which has just announced their decade on ecosystem restoration, which really excites me because I think this is all couched in the fact that we can sort of halt what we're doing with with destruction. We can aim for that. But unless we're starting to try to put these pieces back together, our future and and really the future of life on this planet is is looking much more bleak than if we actually start working towards a, a collective goal at different levels, different scales on putting ecosystems back together. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to be tasked with preparing and leading this UN decade. Uh, and I think we've, we should pause and reflect maybe for a few seconds on the fact that all countries in the world have agreed to proclaim this decade, which is not uh, something that we see a wow. lot these days, that all countries agree on anything, really. <laughs> uh, it's um, yeah. very difficult times for multilateralism. And all the more important is when everybody agrees that we really hear that call. So this is a resolution by the General Assembly that calls for the UN decade. And the main aim is to prevent, halt, and reverse the degradation of ecosystems worldwide. Nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> um, and it's uh, the, the prevent and halt is equally important here because um, we, of course, have to acknowledge that protecting what we have left is usually much more cost effective than restoring what we have lost, which is also sometimes not possible. So we have to recognize that when 4,000 year old pine trees in, in the upper California mountain sheds burn, of course, it's not possible to restore those areas to what nature provides us with now within a human lifetime. But what we can do is halt and reverse both the factors that are leading to this degradation and then over time, also reverse the degradation of ecosystems through restoration to a level where they at least provide us with ecosystem services that we need for our human civilization. Certainly. And this is obviously a value system that has us at the center of it. We are, of course, thinking about our own selves. But when you think about what it means to be a, a species on this planet, what we're dealing with in terms of the, the ecological disasters and, and sort of threats that face us in the coming decades, you know, restoration is going to have to be a big part of this. But what's amazing is it sounds like such a monumental task, such a big thing to get your head wrapped around for any organization. Like you said, just even getting countries to agree on anything is a huge task. But what I really appreciate is looking over uh, the reports and, and seeing what everyone's coming up with is really couching us in this idea of biodiversity. And, and people throw that word around a lot, preserving, protecting, restoring biodiversity. But why is it so important in the context of sort of ecological sustainability and, and again, our future on this planet? Well, those of your listeners who deal with forests will know that they usually think in different timelines. Uh, you know, for a tree, 50 or 100 years is usually not that much. As humans, we think in much shorter timelines. And recently, they've become shorter and shorter, linked to election cycles, to project cycles. So let's uh, step back from that for a minute and look at longer term timelines where we 
think like a forest. And when you think like a forest, we also start to see this in a historic perspective. If let's say we think back 100 years from today, now it's 2021, let's say it's 1921. And you would have walked up to somebody on the streets and, and said, you know, I've got a great idea. It's called the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. They would have said, well, what, what the hell are human rights? You know, well, who, who's ever heard of a thing like that? And you say, oh, it's, it's things like, you know, women should have the right to vote. And people would be like, oh, that's maybe a good idea, but that's not really going to happen. In most countries, women weren't allowed to vote at that mm -hmm. point. So it took a century to anchor this concept of basic and universal human rights in the human consciousness. I think we're at a similar stage in our evolution where this idea of ecological literacy or basically of ecology, which means the knowledge of our common home, has to be anchored in our collective consciousness because without the knowledge of our common home, we can't manage our common home, which is economy. So we need that ecological literacy to play a much, much bigger part in how we see our civilization. And that's not something you do even in 10 years. Maybe the decade can set the foundations for that new relationship between humans and nature, but it's going to take more than that. Unfortunately, we don't have time because mm. California and the, you know, the Canada and the whole Northwest of the US is under record breaking heat wave right now. Uh, we just had a recent study that the Amazon basin might already be beyond the tipping point where it's actually gone from a carbon sink to a carbon source and a source also of other greenhouse gases. So we clearly don't have that time. So we are trying to, as quickly as possible, make that shift in the human consciousness. And the way to do that is through a global movement that brings us all from point A to point B, which is why we've set up the entire decade as a movement with a principle called new power, where people like yourselves and organizations and also governments, but everybody really not only downloads information, they participate actively and they shape the UN decade in mm. their local community, in their company, in their city, in their country. So we call on everybody to be part of this global movement that brings us from where we are now to where we need to be by 2030. That's a wonderful objective, and I really like saying this as sort of a decade worth of sort of teaching and, and getting people set up to make those changes in their own lives, in their local lives, and then again, scaling from there. And this whole idea of scaling is super important because I think historically, when you think about ecology and restoration, I mean, even though these are really sciences that are still in their infancy, it feels like it was left to the experts, left to the specialists. But in reality, it is kind of taking it and putting it in the hands of the people whose lives are going to be most affected, some far more than others. You know, we sit here in a very privileged position in, in sort of westernized societies with strong economies, but there are so many people that don't have that luck. And, and probably know their own community so much better. And so kind of getting everyone at the table together on the same page and then figuring out from there because the solutions aren't going to all be the same. But as long as you start getting this movement ready, like you said, a decade's not going to be enough, but it's a great foundation to start moving this train forward in a way that makes us better stewards of the landscape and, and it really puts us back as part of the ecosystems that we live in in general. Yeah, I, th I think one aspect that we also have to keep in mind is that we are not alone in this. One, one thing that we need to, that we are doing with the decade is to 
connect everybody who's already working in this space. And what we find is that there's enormous amount of people out there already having recognized this, working to educate themselves, educate others, um, take action for restoration. And one more wonderful ally that we have in all of this is nature, because we all know, I mean, working on the land, in the ocean, working with wildlife, with biodiversity, that nature has an enormous capacity for resilience. And given the space and the opportunity, nature will bounce back. So we have to harness the power of nature to solve the multiple crises that we're facing. So biodiversity is not only something to be protected, it's also the key to a more sustainable future and repositioning it from something that we need to protect over there somewhere in nature, whatever that is, <laughs> to no, it's, it's, we are part of nature. We are part of biodiversity. And every harm we do to biodiversity is a harm done to our societies, turning that into a solution using biodiversity for building a more resilient, a more stable, a more just world is at the heart of this UN decade strategy. Right. And again, it's so important to emphasize that biodiversity affects us because you'll hear these conversations, at least here in the United States, I hear it all the time from family and friends that aren't necessarily as interested in nature as what use does this have? What purpose does it have? Well, it's all part of the system that we are in and of ourselves a part of as well. And teaching is a very important tool in all of this. But when people hear restoration, there's a lot of conversations that have gone around. And I think a lot of them are couched in sort of these older ideas of what restoration is, is returning the landscape to how it was. But as you mentioned, you know, you're not going to replace a 4,000-year-old forest overnight. This is something that has to begin with a very different concept of what the uh, sort of goals are in, in place. And that's going to change from place to region to ecosystem that you're, you're concerned with. And so when you think about restoration in that context and, and the idea of trying to communicate this and make this part of the movement... It's, it's almost embracing the fact that we have also left a huge impact on this planet. Our presence here is going to be felt for a very long time, but also embracing that and trying to understand through ecology how we can protect biodiversity moving into a future that's going to just increasingly be modernized. Yeah, I think in, um, in this, it's also, it's, it's really important to stress what you said, that restoration can be an end goal, but it's much more important to see it as a process. Restoration is the process of reversing degradation and a process that leads to recovered biodiversity and to more ecosystem services. That's how we define restoration for the UN decade. If you see restoration as a process, it takes the attention, it shifts the attention away from we need to reestablish nature as it once was because nature is never stable. Nature is always in flux. And it rather focuses the attention on what is our role in nature and what relationship do we need with nature to ensure we have the ecosystem services, but also nature has the space to provide those ecosystem services. And that's a discussion that is, that is only just beginning to happen. And the concept of planetary boundaries is helping us along here that as we see humanity crashing into these planetary boundaries, whether it's the nitrogen cycle or climate change or biodiversity loss, with restoration, we can understand and start to fix many of these boundaries, but it also requires that we start to live within our means. One aspect that our communication team very much likes about restoration is that it's something action-oriented and positive, mm. because we are often stuck with a doom and gloom message <laughs> that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it's all going downhill. 
Restoration is the is is in that sense also a possible antidote to climate anxiety. It can give people something to do uh, and some something to focus on. And when you take action, that creates more hope. More hope creates more action. So we have to move into that virtuous cycle of reinforcing actions that over the course of some years or maybe even some decades, but that will bring us back on a sustainable pathway. I really, really appreciate that perspective, especially in the context of making this a process, because just as you said, that a decade's probably not enough. And this is something that's sort of setting that foundation. This is going to be ongoing, something that humans are going to be involved in for a very long time for the rest of our <laughs> future on this planet. And really what it comes down to is this learning. It's a process of learning, generating data, learning from mistakes especially, but then taking the next step to go forward with it and always couching it into trying to improve on the process. And to me, that's far more exciting and far more actionable, like you said, than saying, well, this is what we're aiming for. And so if it fails, we've got to walk away. We've failed. It's, it's, there's no more. Put it down and, and just give up. So this idea also can apply to wherever you're at. Because again, this is multi-ecosystem focuses here. This is not just forests. This is not just savannas. This is everywhere on the planet. There is no area that humans have not had an impact on. And this idea of focusing on process rather than end goals makes it all the more powerful wherever they're at, wherever these focus and these projects are, are coming on board, whether, again, it's at the individual level, someone working on their balcony or in their front yard or on a farm, all the way up to how we influence our local governments to our national governments and beyond. I think one aspect in what you said, I would like to pick up on that. And and when we set out to say, right, we need a global movement to really make this happen. Otherwise, it's it's just going to be yet another political declaration of which we have many. We examined what are the political commitments that are already out there. So what have our governments said? What have what has industry said about nature and what they want to do? And if you and if you analyze that. One of the headlines in, in one of our recent reports for, was, for example, that over a billion hectares or you know, the size of China or larger than the US is already committed for restoration just on land, on, wow. on oceans and coasts. We still need a similar commitment. But you take that political commitment and you say to your government, to your municipality, to your city, to your company, to your school, right, what are we going to do about this? Because we've said we would do it, so let's get started. And <laughs> coming back to these commitments is quite important because we really have to move from this notion of that we all have to agree what to do. No, we, we, we've, we've done that. We just have to do what has been agreed, including phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and things that we've also uh, basically agreed to do. But our leaders are missing the political courage to do what they know is right. right. And there, everybody has a huge role to play because there's a political theory that says if 3.5% of a population actively demands something, it can shift political will at a massive scale. That is actually not insurmountable. If everybody who likes plants and you combine that with everybody who likes birds, uh, we're probably beyond 50% of any population. <laughs> so let's get organized and, and demand the change that we need to see out of fossil fuels, into regenerative agriculture, into nature-based solutions, into restoration economy that can provide green jobs, into renewable energies. And um, it's, uh, it's doable. 
and it's also our only choice uh, on the, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah, not many options left if we don't have a planet to live on. But, you know, this really emphasizes this idea of it being really just it's human management. It's, it's trying to convince people. It's trying to communicate these issues with people. You know, the science is there and the science is going to be ever involving. But this is not something that only scientists can be involved in, nor is it you have to get into the science game to play this game. I mean, it really comes down to policy. And that's what sort of the United Nations is all about is is really working through the human channels because, you know, left to our own devices, I don't know if we can really uh, say anything's going to happen. But if we start to make these movements sort of focus on, like you said, the political leaders, the institutions that are in place, trying to start to change them in ways that uh, really focus on that and, and put ecology at the, the center, you know, you don't have to be a scientist or an ecologist or even really uh, totally into nature to, to make that effective change or at least start to move towards it. And so, you know, that's the next big thing for me is is when I think about what you and your colleagues are doing, I kind of get overwhelmed. That's a lot. There's a lot of governments. There's a lot of you know red tape and bureaucracy to, to mess around, but it, it all has to be couched in policy. So what is that like on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis uh, in the position that you're in? So first of all, I want to debunk this myth that it's either everything <laughs> has to happen at the high level and it's all about policy or... It's all about grassroots actions. Those two things are linked. And without individual actions at a massive scale, policy will not move because then the political will isn't there. So every action matters, not only for its own results, but also to create the political will for systemic change. Those two things are flip sides of the same coin. And I have this discussion often with with uh, people who say, "Well, but what can I do? I'm, you know, I'm just a normal citizen, and I just eat three times a day, and I <laughs> consume a lot of resources. But what can I do?" And of course, you can do a lot through changing your diets. You can do a lot through becoming politically active. But there are systemic changes that must be taken at the government level, and also increasingly at uh, head of industry level. And those systemic changes include what kind of spending a government prioritizes for for example in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic recovery so the 20 leading OECD countries have programmed about 15 trillion dollars into economic stimulus and um, out of that when we analyze that there's about 18 percent that you could characterize as somehow as somehow green you know supporting renewable energies and only three percent are somehow linked to nature so I think we can do much better than that. If we, if you have $15 trillion to reinvest, why do we keep pumping them into uh, existing uh, fossil fuel industries, for example, that need propping up, where instead you could build up a rural economy completely based on ecosystem conservation restoration? We are at a point in history where those changes are possible, but people need to stand up and demand that, and then it will happen. So the political change is linked. Our everyday work includes very much things like writing this report about the $15 trillion and what they're spent on and writing about the UN decade's potential in our launch report for the decade. And uh, we also did another assessment recently about how much money is needed for nature-based solutions between now and 2030 and thereby advocating for this political change. We, of course, also help member states come together and have those discussions the next time at the um, UN General Assembly where the food systems and agriculture will play a big role. Then we have the CBD COP15 in in China. We have the Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. We have the UN Environment Assembly early next year. So there's 
there's always another meeting on the horizon where these decisions could be taken, but they will only be taken when enough people say that they want change. Certainly. And again, what I really appreciate is this is not you stepping in, not you, the, the royal you at the United Nations. Um, it's, it's really saying we're going to facilitate this. We're going to give you the tools. We're going to give you the information necessary to start making these changes happen in your lives and in the lives of you know those around you. But also what I really appreciate is that this is not about just forests or grasslands. When you look at the UN's Environment Program website, it's forests, it's oceans, it's urban areas, it's peatlands, it's farmlands mountains, grasslands, oceans, and coasts. You know, this is really all-encompassing no matter where you live, what you're doing. But at the center, when you think about sort of the common thread other than these being important ecosystems, you know, plants really set the foundation for most of them. And really, when you think about what it takes to restore an ecosystem, would you say that a a focus on plants, you know, this is the In Defense of Plants podcast, after all, uh, really could set these goals on a trajectory for more success, more powerful, um, you know, effectual changes in the way we're dealing with ecosystems around the world? Yes, it is indeed about all ecosystems. Uh, We've put out a little booklet called the Ecosystem Restoration Handbook, uh, or it's actually the Ecosystem Restoration Playbook, sorry, um, that uh, we'll, we'll share the link with you and uh, you can share that with your listeners. Certainly. Um, that, that has actions that everybody can take no matter where they're at in this state of knowledge, either they're beginner and or you're in a primary school child and you want to do something, or you're a university graduate and you want to do something. So it has options for a whole range of people. Plants certainly are at the basis of everything that Earth provides for our needs. Um, we we have um, one rock star in particular that is, of course, you know, trees have been getting a lot of the attention on on restoration, and there's been a lot of talk about restoring and reforesting large areas. And we've also seen quite a bit of criticism about uh, that particular plant because you can make a lot of mistakes uh, there if right. you actively reforest and. I think it's it's worthwhile here to reflect for a little bit on that reforestation can be done right. And we luckily have a few decades of experience, well, good and bad, that we can learn from how to plant the right tree at the right time in the right place with the right social support so that we ensure that at least when it comes to, to trees, we do things right. But that initial focus on trees very quickly has broadened, as you said, to grasslands, savannas, drylands, to coastal and ocean habitats, to mountains. And we really ask everybody to engage wherever they can. I saw a great tweet this morning from an oyster rewilding project in the UK where the whole community went out and replanted native oysters in their coastal areas. And it's just so nice to see that restoration not only brings this ecological benefit, but it's really something that also can build community. I think that's an aspect we we, we should explore further and, and build on as well. Definitely. Again, putting people back into the landscapes in which they, they live in. It's not just you sitting in your house and your nice cozy air conditioning. It's it's realizing that we rely on this landscape and we can have all have a part in doing it and, and bringing people together under this united goal. But really putting it into the hands of the people that rely on it the most, like fishing, farming, uh, you know, subsistence survival on forests and stuff like that. I mean, it is so vital that we engage people at all levels and realize just how much people rely on this, that some of them are going to be affected in way worse ways than others, uh, you know, down the line, if, if we don't do anything. 
So this this book called New Power by Jeremy Hyman's uh, has been very influential in helping us draft a strategy for the UN decade. And New Power is about how our global civilization has changed through the digitization of our world. So suddenly we do have the opportunity to very quickly and very cheaply reach out to hundreds of thousands, millions and tens of millions of people. And we've seen that strategy deployed both for good and for not so good uh, in, in recent years. And there's certainly risks in uh, the digitization of the world. But one of the benefits is that we can offer everybody who has a stake to really be part of this United Nations decade. This is not something that happens out there or up there in New York or Geneva or wherever we all uh, meet for these summits. It's something that really we invite everybody to get involved in directly. Not only our member states, the governments that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, of course, they are our first port of call. They are our first client base, but we also invite everybody who's out there, your listeners, um, everybody who has a stake to become an active part of this UN decade and visit decadeonrestoration.org and learn more how to join this movement. Wonderful. And before I let you go, I mean, to couch all of this in in probably the largest global threat we have today, which is climate change. I mean, it's something that everyone's thinking about. It's it's terrifying because we don't know what we're doing to ourselves, what we're doing to the planet and what those downstream effects are. Chances are they're not going to be allowing us to live the lives that we live today. But thinking about restoration in the context of climate change, it's not that climate change is going to mess all this up and it's just going to ruin every attempt that we make. It's adapting for that and also mitigating it along the way, correct? I mean, that's got to be part of it. I've seen yourself, uh, you know, someone that works in this day in and day out call themselves a stubborn climate optimist. So to see that from someone in your position is really uplifting because it, it still gives me the sense that there's hope that this can all be part of these solutions. Again, I think uh, look back uh, in history is is helpful here because if we look back far enough in human history, which is not that far, by the way, I mean, we've only been around on Earth <laughs> for a snapshot of Earth's history, sure. but We've been around far long enough to be able to learn from the rise and fall also of past civilizations. And if you analyze that deeply enough, and uh, Jared Diamond, for example, has written uh, very well about this topic, you see that resource management is always at the heart of how a civilization prospers or fails. And this is the first time in history that we live in a truly global civilization. That has never happened before. I mean, there were empires and civilizations that emerged regionally and disappeared again. But it's the first time that we live in a global civilization. That's something uniquely precious, but it also gives us the opportunity to act as one global civilization with the awareness, with the data, with the connectivity that we have. We can turn this ship around. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And Uh, You see the signs of climate action that is emerging everywhere. You see the political changes that are being made that some just five years ago thought were not possible. And there, there is always hope. But the more action we take, the more hope we create. That is the important message here for everybody. Right. And by restoring ecosystems, we're restoring sort of the systems that keep our climates regulated. It's, it's storing carbon. It's, Transpiring, uh, transpiring water into the environment. It's allowing systems to operate, biodiversity to support the, the crops uh, that produce the food that we eat. I mean, this is all connected because coming back to this idea, we're part of the environment. We're not this separate being that can just 
walk away from it whenever we decide eh, it's not important right now. What we often talk about with our member states and, and others is the multiple dividend that you get from investments in nature-based solutions, not only for climate change mitigation, but also for climate adaptation and for many of the other sustainable development goals. So the decade is really linked to the 17 sustainable development goals from clean water to life on land, to life below water, to peace, to decent work, to no poverty, zero hunger. So all of those goals can be helped by successful ecosystem restoration. And it's important for us to remember that because if, you know, as uh, people who love plants, birds, animals, nature, we, we're maybe not always in the majority, but if you link this to what matters to people's lives, including in developing countries, which is decent work, uh, no poverty, clean water, you, you get access to a much, much broader audience and indeed nature and plants, of course, in particular, you're right, <laughs> are at the basis of all our needs and of achieving the sustainable development goals. Wonderful. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us about this today. This is so vital. I love that the United Nations has decided to dedicate an entire decade to getting restoration into the lexicon and giving us a way of moving forward, a process, no matter where you live or what you're doing or who you are. Everyone's got a stake in this. So if people want to find out more about your work, more about the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration in general, where do you recommend they go looking? DecadeOnRestoration.org, which uh, is already quite a popular website now after World Environment Day and the big launch we had last month. But we're building that over the next few months into a digital hub that will allow everybody who arrives there to find the resources that they need based on who they are and what they're looking for. So we're really building a little bit of the, the, the Yelp of restoration. <laughs> and everybody who's involved in this and um, can have a, a profile there, people can then find each other and find the resources they need and express also what they're doing uh, to make sure they're part of this global movement. Fantastic. And I will add all of the links so people can find that immediately without having to struggle to, to search it out. And it's a fantastic website. There's something on there for everyone. And I highly recommend everyone go and look at it. But Tim Christofferson, this has been fantastic. I love the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Please keep it up. I love your optimism. And thank you so much for talking with us about it today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Matt. Take care. Yeah, you as well. Cheers. Bye. All right. Incredible work. I cannot thank Tim and his colleagues enough for all of the effort they're putting into the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. Of course, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode, so just head over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find that. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Becoming a patron is the best way to ensure that this show has a future, and I could not be doing it without all of the wonderful contributions each month from all of the wonderful patrons I have over there. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes to Aristia. Aristia went over there and signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the wonderful kickbacks you can possibly get over there, which includes this producer credit and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. A little bit goes a long way, and again, I thank everyone that has supported the show to date. I couldn't be doing it without you. Of course, we have merch and books for sale. Just head on over to the show notes where I put all of the relevant links. You can find those. I don't have to keep saying them. So don't pull over or stop running or whatever you're doing while you're listening to this. Just whenever you get the chance, go visit our website at indefenseplants.com slash podcast to find those. I appreciate it. And again, that's another great way to help make sure the show has a future. 
But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and tell your friends. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.